some of the early examples of what's going on in REM sleep were actually written or drawn actually on the caves in France. Human OS. Learn. Master. Achieve. John Peaver, welcome to Human OS Radio. Thanks for having me, Dan. Tell us about what you do. So I'm a professor at the University of Toronto in Canada. And what our lab does is to try and figure out how the brain gets you to go to sleep and gets you to wake up. And in particular, what our research is focused on is really understanding dreaming sleep. So what parts of the brain initiate dreaming sleep and what does dreaming sleep actually do for the brain and the body? Let's talk about the process of sleep initiation and then what type of stages do we go through in the sleep process? So there are really two types of sleep. I think most people intuitively understand that there are two types of sleep. There's what we call deep sleep, which is that phase in the sleep cycle where you fall asleep and then you sort of drift off and never land. You don't really remember much about what happened from the time that you were awake to the time you went to sleep. But then after about 90 minutes, at least in people, they enter into this amazingly curious state of dreaming sleeper, rapid eye movement or REM sleep, in which they tend to have very vivid, surreal dreams. Most people will be familiar with Salvador Dali's strange paintings of clocks melting over rocks. And that's the type of strange imagery that happens during dreaming or REM sleep. And so humans and most mammals actually go through that very standard cycle of sleep where you drift into that deep sleep and then you go into dreaming sleep and then you go back to deep sleep and then you go back into dreaming sleep. So there's this sort of oscillation of those two types of sleep in most mammals. Scientists actually define REM sleep in a very quantitative way that the brain, once it goes from that deep phase into REM, changes the patterns of activity of the cells. And if you measure all the brain activity on the surface of the brain, REM sleep has a really amazing, what we call a brainwave signature that's very different than that phase of deep sleep. REM sleep is also characterized by, as the name rapid eye movement implies, eyes darting back and forth. And then one of the other really amazing features is that even though the brain during REM sleep is almost as active and can be more active than when you're alert and awake, you have this paralysis of the muscles of the body, except for the breathing muscles and the heart. Most of the body's muscles are actually forced into a, a state of muscle paralysis. So it's that signature of rapid eye movements, the very characteristic signatures and brainwave activity and muscle paralysis accompanied by vivid dreaming that scientists use to, in humans and many animals, characterize REM sleep. Now, not all animals actually experience REM sleep. So, for example, dolphins and whales seem to have parts of what human REM sleep look like, but not all of them. And so most terrestrial mammals have REM sleep, but sea mammals, particularly dolphins and whales, they don't seem to have uh, REM sleep. So it can look different in different animals. And then are there different types of REM sleep even in humans, or is it just one phase that always looks the same? No, REM sleep is actually pretty different across the night. So at the beginning of the night, the first time that you enter into REM sleep, it's a really short period. And then as the night progresses and you get closer to the morning, 
every time you enter into a period of REM sleep, those periods get longer. And there's lots of evidence to suggest that even the signatures of REM sleep that I mentioned, like how quiet your muscles are and the type of dreaming and brain activity, they can actually change as well across the night. So REM sleep, although it's in the broadest sense, pretty much the same, it seems to evolve across the night. What are some of the theoretical purposes of this type of sleep? I think REM sleep is one of those amazing phases in the human and animal lifespan that if you could imagine a purpose for REM sleep, someone has proposed, you know, I sort of go back into some of the earliest sort of examples of what's going on in REM sleep were actually written or drawn actually on the caves in France. Mm. So one of the other things I didn't mention is that in men, they typically have, or in healthy men, they have an erection during REM sleep. So one of the very earliest examples of REM sleep in history is actually a cave drawing in the western part of France showing that there are men with erections and little bubbles, almost like cartoon bubbles above their head, depicting dreams. And I think that was their way of understanding what REM sleep might be doing. And so in early history, a lot of different cultures thought that your mind was leaving your body and teletransporting to another realm. And as crazy as that might seem, there are actually some sleep scientists, the most famous of all of them being Michael Jouvet, who actually thought that wasn't necessarily a crazy idea, that it was a time for the brain to sort of disconnect from reality and maybe even the body. If somebody is not getting adequate amounts of REM sleep, what are some things that we see as a consequence. So this has been one of the real sticking points for hardcore scientists is how do you actually figure out what REM sleep is doing for the brain and the body? And one of the real problems, and this might be really fine grained, but how do you actually figure out how to figure out what REM sleep is doing. And what has classically been done is to just basically take REM sleep away, sort of starve the brain and body of REM sleep. But a lot of scientists have really questioned the validity of that. And one of the most recent and amazing studies is by a colleague of mine in Switzerland, Antoine Adamantidis, where what he decided to do was to prevent just one element of REM sleep and look at how that impacts learning. And why he did that was there's a very characteristic, as I mentioned before, signature and brain activity that happens in REM sleep. So he basically starved a very tiny group of cells in the brain of that activity. And what he found is when he did that, it didn't disrupt sleep, it didn't wake the animals up, it didn't do anything to perturb their sleep. But what he found is the animals didn't learn as well once he did that. So he really sort of discovered that one of the signatures in REM sleep, that very characteristic brain activity, seems to help you learn better. In my conversation with Professor Luis de la Salle at Stanford, we talked about the techniques that are now being used to selectively inhibit the function of certain neurons in a live animal. Is this the optogenetic inhibition of GABA cells in the medial septum that was able to derive this finding? Yeah, so one of the really amazing things in neuroscience is is scientists' ability to study cells in the brain and what they do for normal behavior. And so the study I was referring to by Dr. Adam Antidis, he was able to basically silence a very specific group of cells in a region of the brain called the medial septum that generate this characteristic brain activity in REM sleep and show that when you just silence their activity, you don't change how much REM sleep a mouse has, you just quiet that particular brain activity that happens in REM, his mice weren't able to learn as well. So optogenetics is a really powerful way of doing that. And it's just um, you're able to use light to turn cells on and off in the brain and then 
study how those cells contribute to a behavior, and in this case, REM sleep behavior. Has he been able to activate GABA cells in the medial septum during REM sleep to see if he could actually enhance learning? They've not published anything about that yet, but I'm guessing that that is what their plan is, is to basically fortify those brain signatures in REM sleep and see if you can if you can learn better and presumably seeing if you can make them happen while you're awake and even learn better than when you're just sleeping. So the mice spent the same amount of time in REM sleep. So from a electroencephalographic recording, you couldn't tell that there was any difference, but by the manipulation of the type of waves that were occurring during sleep, it was actually changing whether it was functional or not. Yeah, so they did a whole bunch of really close control cells in that deep stage of sleep where they're not normally active, or it's called non-REM sleep or slow-wave sleep, and they didn't affect. So it seems that just preventing those cells from working just during REM sleep is what's important for perturbing behavior. So there's been a really long-standing hypothesis by many, but not all in the science community, that REM sleep is really important for a specific type of motor learning. And that's what Dr. Adamantidis was able to show. Is it associated or thought to be associated with other types of learning as well? Like I said before, if there's been an idea about what REM sleep does, it's been proposed and some of them are crazy. But certainly REM sleep has been thought to be involved in various types of learning. And the evidence to support that is actually quite equivocal. What I mean by that, it's not clear. In certain circumstances, if you look at people who are taking a particular class of drug, it actually prevents all expression of REM sleep. But those people seem to learn just as well as people who have REM sleep. So I think a lot of caution needs to be cast on what REM sleep does. And I think one of the problems is, is that we think it just does one thing. And it's pretty clear from looking at the literature and certainly from our work that REM sleep has many different functions. People that are depressed take antidepressants. Those can have a profound impact on suppressing REM, yet there doesn't seem to be an impairment in learning. So that would challenge the idea that REM sleep is fundamental to learning. Yeah, I think that's one of the things that we need to be really cautious as researchers is that you often read in newspaper articles and even in scientific literature that sleep is required for certain types of learning. And I think that's just a clear factual misunderstanding. Sleep clearly facilitates uh, certain types of learning, but it's not required for it. Mm -hmm. So far, we've described that this is a unique state where you have a highly active brain and the body is paralyzed. And that's one of the cardinal classic features of REM sleep is this REM sleep associated atonia or muscle suppression. Let's talk a little bit about the mechanisms there because it's been hard to figure out and it's pretty interesting how it works. So I know this can get really deep in the weeds here, but generally speaking, what is taking place during REM that causes the body to go into paralysis? There is one group of cells in the brain called motor neurons, and they're the cells in the brain that actually tell your muscles to contract or not contract. And so what my group and others have shown is that the signals that go to those motor neurons are basically shut off during REM sleep so that they can't activate the muscles. Mm. And when they can't activate the muscles, you have REM sleep paralysis. And so there's a very specific series of chemical processes going on in the brain that only happen in REM sleep that make sure those cells are remaining inactive so that your muscles also remain inactive. And are there any pathological situations where this connection between the typical atonia or muscle loss during REM becomes aberrant in some way? 
I personally think this is one of the biggest and most important elements in understanding REM sleep and what it does for the brain and body. And the reason I say that is that there's a group of people who have what's called REM sleep behavior disorder. And those individuals don't have that normal loss of muscle tone. And they move around and they appear to act out their dreams. And face value that a lot of people think that's cute and funny and some people think it's embarrassing that they're moving around and acting out their dreams. But the really amazing thing from a clinical perspective is that the vast majority of those individuals, 80 to 90% of them, go on to develop a very particular type of neurodegenerative disorder. And the most common one is Parkinson's disease. And all of these people, virtually all of them, develop Parkinson's disease or some other degenerative process such as a form of dementia. And so it seems really remarkable that when you lose the normal ability to shut your muscles off in REM sleep, that you develop this type of neurodegeneration. And I think that's a way of the body telling you that when REM sleep muscle paralysis is lost, something terribly wrong goes on in the brain. Originally, I thought, is this REM sleep behavior disorder, is the pathology behind that have common overlap in terms of the pathology with dementia? But it sounds like it might be the fact that the suppression of motor activity is important in some way for the brain as physiology that's being suppressed or altered that is causing the downstream problems with dementia. Yeah, so I think that's a really excellent point. I mean, I think there are two ways to think of it. Either one, the cells that cause your muscles to shut off in REM sleep are damaged, and that's why you don't have the normal loss of muscle tone during REM sleep and you act out your dreams. Or two, and I think this is the far more provocative idea, is that the suppression of muscle activity during REM sleep is actually really mm -hmm. important for the brain. And we found actually recently that the muscle activity during REM sleep seems to be extremely instructive for the brain in order to terminate REM sleep and then wake up. And so I think either of those possibilities is still an open question. Is it that the cells that cause you to go into REM sleep and your muscles stay quiet? Is it that they're dying? Or is it that the loss of muscle paralysis during REM sleep then wreaks havoc with the brain and you develop a form of neurodegenerative disorder. So there's an acute risk of people acting out our dreams, right? So there's theories that the reason we go into paralysis is so that we don't hurt ourselves by running into a tree while we're asleep. And this might be apocryphal, but I've heard that there have even been people that have been acquitted of murder for attacking their bed partner, who they thought was attacking them in their dream, but they were shown to have REM sleep behavior disorder and they were acquitted. Yeah, there's a lot of stories like that actually evolving. There's an entire field of law now that involves sleep experts basically explaining why people have done some really unusual and often violent things during their sleep. So, you know, there's been recent cases where someone beat their partner up. There's a case where someone raped their partner and the individual was found to actually have REM sleep behavior disorder or other types of sleep disorders in which these behaviors actually become apparent. So some pretty crazy things can happen when you're sleeping because you're not aware of what you're doing. Are you really legally culpable for those actions? So there's acute risk for hurting yourself or others, and then pretty high percentage that'll lead to neurodegeneration of some form that causes dementia in some way. Now, talk about men and women. Does this occur equally in both genders? That's an open-ended question, I think. At the moment, it seems that men are much more affected by this REM sleep behavior disorder. And it's really fascinating from a sex difference between men and women is that women who do have REM sleep behavior disorder 
their dreams tend to be much more gentle and mm-hmm. their movements, therefore, are much milder than men. So one of the conundrums is, is that maybe men and women have the same rate of REM sleep behavior disorder. It's just that the way women act out their dreams is much gentler than men. And so they're underdiagnosed. But at present, it, it seems that men are much more afflicted with REM sleep behavior disorder than women. But I think caution needs to be given to that, given that women's dreams are so much milder, they may not land up getting to the hospital Hmm. or to see their doctor to be diagnosed with that disorder. Are the rates of downstream dementia equivalent in men and women? There's so many forms of dementia and Parkinson's disease that I just don't think there's a way to answer it in a retrospective way, simply because there are different types of dementia and different types of Parkinson's and they develop at different rates. And overall, they're pretty equal in men and women when you look at the global picture in terms of just sheer percentages. Are there any other interesting conditions where this lack or disruption of the atonia show up in the world? So there's the complete opposite to this, where you lose REM sleep paralysis while you're in REM sleep. But there's a complete polar opposite, which is where REM sleep paralysis or atonia occurs while you're awake. Mm. And that's been one of our other major focuses of research is looking at when your muscles simply go paralyzed or become extremely weak when you're awake. And that condition is known as cataplexy, and it's a symptom of a sleep disorder called narcolepsy. Someone who experiences an episode of cataplexy, they all of a sudden seem to lose muscle tone in their face and then their neck and then the loss of muscle tone sort of goes from the top of the head towards the feet and so these people just sort of slump over and they're unable to move but what's really amazing is that they're totally awake and aware of what's going on they just can't move their bodies in response and one of the things that's really quite unfortunate is those events of cataplexy are typically triggered by very emotionally coded events, with the most common one being laughter. Mm. So someone who has narcolepsy and has cataplexy, if someone were to crack a really funny joke, that joke would trigger a highly excited emotion and then precipitate in cataplexy. So joke leads to loss of muscle tone to someone lying on the floor unable to move, but they're completely aware of what's going on. Think about how somebody who has narcolepsy and cataplexy would therefore want to modify their life to try to suppress the emotions so they don't enter into cataplexy, a sad aspect of that condition. I think a lot of times it's really amazing that in movies and in social media, narcolepsy and cataplexy is almost made fun of because these people simply can't move and they someone tells a joke and they fall on the floor. And I've talked to a lot of people who have cataplexy. It's really an emotionally very difficult feature of their disorder because they avoid social context in which funny things or scary things are happening for fear of having an episode of cataplexy. It's really embarrassing for these people, or at least they seem to think it's embarrassing, that in the middle of the mall, they're lying on the floor unable to move. And a lot of people have told me that why it's embarrassing is that other people who don't understand what's going on think that they're drunk or that there's something wrong with them. And it's not a bona fide condition that they're sort of faking it, if you will. And so people with narcolepsy really avoid parties and any type of thing in which funny things or scary things are happening for fear of having cataplexy in public. The comorbidity of depression in people with narcolepsy and cataplexy is rather high. 
And you can look at it as a nature nurture question. So is the depression fundamental part of the alterations in the neurocircuitry that are taking place in people that have cataplexy or that have narcolepsy? Or is it actually sort of a nurture experience where if they're turning away from emotional experiences in life, then that part of them is unfulfilled? It's a chicken and egg scenario. Like, are you depressed because you have narcolepsy or are you depressed because what causes narcolepsy also makes you depressed? And I think that it's really likely that there are both elements going on in this condition. So there's evidence that if you take away the cells in the brain that cause narcolepsy, that there's also elements of depression associated. But it's equally as clear that people who have narcolepsy are depressed because their life isn't as good as it was before they developed narcolepsy. They're limited in how they can socialize. They're limited in what jobs they can do. And so I think you've kind of got two elements going on where the depression is part of the disorder itself, but the depression is also a side effect of the disorder because they realize that life isn't quite the same as it was before they developed narcolepsy. Let's talk about drugs or substances or things that have shown to increase REM sleep or things that suppress it. Tell us about some of the things that actually will suppress REM, some pharmacological agents that cause us to get less REM sleep. So there's a variety of different classes of drugs that seem to be really good at suppressing REM sleep. Some of them are tricyclic antidepressants, and some of them are called monoamine oxidase inhibitors. Each of those drugs is used for different medical purposes, but what's really amazing is that suppresses all the measurable or outward symptoms of REM sleep in people and in animals. And those drugs seem to be really good at suppressing cataplexy, which we were just talking about. And what I mentioned was that it seems that cataplexy may be the pathological turning on, if you will, of those brain circuits that cause muscle paralysis, except in cataplexy, it happens when you're awake. So one idea that scientists and clinicians have had is that the drugs that suppress REM sleep are really good at suppressing cataplexy. And maybe they're suppressing cataplexy by suppressing the parts of the brain that generate REM sleep paralysis. We know that some drugs will increase REM sleep, like M2 agonists, risperidine, prazosin, even LSD. What do you think about increasing REM sleep pharmacologically? That's a great question because I think there's so much attention focused on the fact that more REM sleep could be good for the body, for the brain, and in specific for learning. But I think some real caution needs to be given to trying to increase REM sleep when we really don't know if that's a good idea. And so a simple analogy here is in the context of eating. So eating more sounds like a great idea and everyone loves to do it. But the problem is, is that the nasty side effect is getting fat. And so one of my concerns from a scientific point of view is it sounds all good to have more sleep. Is too much sleep, in particular too much REM sleep, really a good thing? And there's some really nice evidence out there that sleep in general, that people who sleep too long actually have some negative health outcomes, such as not living as long. So I think a lot of caution needs to be given in the angle of trying to increase REM sleep because we really don't know if it's a good or bad thing at this point in time. What do you know about the lifestyle healthy REM connection? I don't think there's any really 
solid scientific evidence to suggest that there is an optimum amount of REM sleep. And I say that about optimum amounts of REM sleep because people who don't have very much REM sleep because they're taking various drugs, they seem to be totally normal and healthy. So it casts doubt on the validity of how much REM sleep you need. Do you even need REM sleep to be a healthy individual? To go back to the much more important question of sleep in general as opposed to REM sleep, it's crystal clear that an optimal amount of sleep is important for an overall healthy lifestyle. So the National Sleep Foundation has a phenomenal quote that I absolutely adore and I use all the time when I do public speaking events is sleep just as important as diet and exercise only easier. And I think what I really want to end with is there are some really simple, easy to do things that allow you to get a good night of sleep. Please, And that is keeping a very regular routine, calming down at the end of a night. Don't look at your computer. Don't get yourself revved up before bed. Don't eat too much before you go to bed. Don't drink coffee. Don't smoke cigarettes. Don't drink alcohol before going to bed. And those are all real simple tools that people can use to help optimize a good night of sleep. They're not a cure-all, but in the average Joe or Jane, they're really helpful in getting a decent night of sleep. REM has been called the gateway to waking. You have published some work looking at that phenomenon specifically, and there are now apps that will try to predict an optimal time to wake up based off of what stage of sleep they're detecting you're in. Do you think it's a good idea, or should you just try to sleep another 20 minutes and will that additional sleep be better than waking up a little bit earlier, but from theoretically a better stage. I think waking up at the right time in sleep is really important. And it should be intuitive to every person who is listening to this. If you've ever fallen asleep on a Saturday afternoon, you've drifted into deep sleep, and then you wake up out of that deep sleep because your kids run in or your partner runs in and they wake you up and you have no idea where you are. You might not even understand what day it is. You're disoriented and it can be quite frightening. But when you wake up out of REM sleep, your body is prepared to wake up. And why that is, is because every time an animal and every time a human finishes an episode of REM sleep, it terminates with waking up. So I think the tools and apps that you're talking about that can sort of tune or optimize when to turn the alarm on, if they can do that at the end of a period of REM sleep, that is really quite beneficial because our research and others have really shown that the brain and body are designed to wake up at the end of REM sleep. And that's just not the case at the end of deep sleep or non-REM sleep, where the body can wake up sluggish, or it might even be preparing to move into REM sleep. So one of the things that we're really curious on is, is it that REM sleep is important to recuperate what happened while you were awake? Or is REM sleep actually a stage in the sleep cycle that's preparing you to wake up? And I think this is one of the big questions in what is sleep doing for the brain and body? And one of the things that we're working on is really trying to understand is, is REM sleep really preparing you to wake up as opposed to keeping you asleep? And do you have any idea about from what stage you wake from? Does that have an effect on your wake quality that lasts an hour or might it last the entire day? Yeah, I don't really know of any data. I mean, I'm sure it's there. I'm just not familiar with it, whether if you wake up out of deep sleep 
And bearing in mind there are different types of deep sleep, whether that impacts for a, a significant period of time your mood and the quality of your wakefulness. But certainly, again, from a highly intuitive point of view, if you wake up out of the deepest stage of sleep or slow-wave sleep, it's really ugly. You're tired, you're sluggish, you have what we call sleep inertia. But when you wake up out of REM sleep, you're pretty geared, you're jacked, you're ready to go. And there's some really beautiful old studies from Adrian Morrison at the University of Pennsylvania showing that even in animals, the type of wakefulness that follows REM sleep is very different than the type of wakefulness that follows waking up from deep sleep. Well, that's a great point to end on. Thank you for your time and your work in the field to help us understand the neurocircuitry better and also to hopefully prevent some of the pathological conditions that can happen. It was my pleasure. Thanks for listening and come visit us soon at humanos.me.